Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Let's go ahead and make your way back to your seats, please. We're going to get started. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 46 or follow along in the bulletin. And uh, when I first got up here, I was like, oh no, did the rapture happen last night? I'm joking. I'm joking. And a lot of people are out of town. I'm going to preach, though, this morning as if there were a full auditorium. So that's just the way that I do things, all right? So Isaiah 46, I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll pray and uh, see what God has for us here. Isaiah 46. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot say the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales. Hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, Father, you're not just a distant God, but you are our Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for what you have for us in this text. God, we thank you that all of Scripture is profitable for us. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's all good. It's all for our upbuilding and edification, for our salvation. So, Lord, thank you for this text. God, I thank you for the enormous vision we get of who you are in this passage. And oh God, I pray that we would catch it, that we would see it, and that we would be encouraged and changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that these chapters in Isaiah do for us, we're going through Isaiah 40 to 66, the end of the book. One thing that these chapters do for us is they give us this almost incessant, constant powerful, 
clear witness of God's, what I would say, his godness, of who God is, that he is God and there is no other. He is one of a kind. In our day, I think this is something we need more of and not less. We need more of a vision of who God is, unadulterated godness. A.W. Tozier once wrote that in, in all that there is, all that exists, there are two big categories. One is God, and he says the other category is everything that's not God. Okay, And so we see in these passages that what God is like, he's enormous, he's glorious, he is God, and everything else is not God. In 1961, A.W. Tozier writing the book, um, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said this, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. The decline of the knowledge of this holy God has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. I agree with that. If we see what God wants us to see in Isaiah 46... It will, it will destroy small views of God and it will cure a thousand ailments our souls suffer under. This is because our view of God, your view of God, my view of God, largely affects, it affects in an enormous way the way that we live and the way that we think about everything else, consciously and unconsciously. If we could grasp what God says in this chapter about who he is, I believe it would slay pride. It would put to death anxiety and fear. I'm not saying we wouldn't have to put it to death again tomorrow or the next day, but it would, it would do something. It would help us to understand who God is and fears would become much smaller or even go away. It would remove superficiality and temporal thinking and small God thinking. There are two things that seem to rule the day in our society, and it's one, what works. It's it, what works. It's pragmatism. It's the American way, right? Pragmatism, what works. The other is what makes me feel good. And Isaiah 46 is not a chapter that deals with either one of those things, Okay? So things that may seem to contradict these two cultural values are often rejected. But Isaiah comes to us in Isaiah 46, and we get hit between the eyes with truth that shatter these flimsy values and has the power to radically change our lives. So as we approach this chapter, I want to talk about, want to first talk about what's the main point Quite honestly, as I was thinking about this, this chapter this week, there are about three big things I thought could take a sermon each. But there is one thing, if we take a step back, there's one overarching point, and then these other three things that could have been sermons on their own, I think serve to highlight this main point. So what's the main point in this passage? The main point in this passage is... The unique, that God is utterly unique. That God is utterly unique. I've heard some put it this way, so this is not something I came up with. It's kind of a clever thought, but that there is an otherness to God. There is an otherness to God. God is totally unique. He is one of a kind. 
And I get this from verses 5 and 9. In verse 5, we see God asking a rhetorical question. And in verse 9, we see that God answers it. Verse 5 says this, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? And in verse 9, God answers the question. He says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So what's the point? God is one of a kind, right? If you have children, you know, you think, my child is like one of a kind, okay? Well, God is the ultimate, one of a kind. God, there's no one like God. God is laboring in this passage to exhibit himself as unique, as altogether other from everything else and from other so-called gods. As human beings, we often learn by comparison. We say things like, well, this is like that, or this person is like that, or they look like this other person. But when we approach God, we cannot do that. He is altogether unique, utterly other and unique. He is one of a kind. He's in a category all all on his own. This is good to keep in mind so that Psalm 50, verse 21, doesn't happen to us. God speaking to his people says, You thought I was altogether like you. You thought I was like you. And that is oftentimes what happens when we lose sight of who God is, that he is God alone. We get small God thinking, and we then start making him more and more like us. But when we try to compare something to God, every analogy breaks down. Every analogy eventually breaks down because God is totally unique. Even when we think of God as Father, and God calls himself Father. Or when we think of the kindness of God, or the wisdom of God, or the power of God. If somehow we try to compare that, ultimately, to something in the creation, then the analogy will break down and fall apart. And quite frankly, this makes us uncomfortable. <clears throat> you, guys, you guys know what xenophobia is? Ever heard that phrase before anyways? Xenophobia is the fear of something that's strange or foreign. God is the ultimate foreign object. Right? He, is, he presents strangeness in the ultimate sense to us. And... This plays out not just in chapter, not just in places like Isaiah 46, but even in the Gospels. I was reading through Mark this last week. Amazing story. You guys have probably heard it, many of you anyways. Where the disciples are going across the Sea of Galilee, and a great big windstorm comes, such that the, the wind is blowing against the boat, waves are blowing over the bow of the boat, and the disciples are frightened and scared out of their minds. And they go to Jesus and say, they say, Jesus, we're perishing. Don't you care? And Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves, and they stop immediately. And what do you think the disciples do? You know what it says? They were greatly afraid. 
and said, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The wind and waves, they cause great fear, right? The disciples thought they were going to drown. But after Jesus stops the wind and waves, it begs the question, were they more afraid of the storm or of Jesus after the fact? God is the creator. He is infinite and immortal. We are the creation, totally finite and mortal. So God is totally unique, utterly unique. Isaiah 46 gives us, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about three ways God is seen as one of a kind. There's none like him. He is God and there is no other. He stands totally alone. First, God is totally unique in that he is self-sufficient. Meaning this, he is not needy. He doesn't need a thing. God being self-sufficient means he doesn't need anything. He has all fullness in himself. Nothing in all creation adds to God in the least bit. Therefore, he lacks nothing. Creation did not spring from God feeling the need for companionship or the need for anything else. He is totally self-sufficient. Now, this is hard for us, us to understand because we as human beings, we wake up every day with needs that abound. We have need for water. We have need for oxygen. We have need for food. We have need for shelter. We have all kinds of need, but God has no need whatsoever. Even if we were to picture God as the Pacific Ocean, we don't add a thimble, a little thimble you put on your thumb, full of water to him. He is totally sufficient. He is totally full in and of himself. You might say, where is that at in this passage? I'll show you. God uses a bit of sarcasm here in talking about the Babylonian gods. In verses 1 and 2, we read about two Babylonian gods, Bel and Nebo. Bel was considered almighty God, the Lord of heaven and earth for the Babylonians. And Nebo was a God of wisdom. Let's read, read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. These gods of the Babylonian people, they need to be carried around. They are, they are a burden to whoever or whatever carries them, whether it's a human being or a cattle or some other kind of beast. They weigh down whatever's carrying them. They are a burden. They go wherever they're led. They don't go where they want to. They go where they are led, even to captivity. These gods, Bel and Nebo, need to be carried around. They need help. Verses 6 to 8, same, pick up on this narrative. And it says this, yeah, 6 to 8. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer and it can't save from his trouble. 
Again, God is using sarcasm here to talk about the foolishness of serving other gods who need to be made, right? They need to be given eyes to help them see, though they can't see. They need to be given ears to help them hear, though they can't hear. And they need to be given a mouth to help them speak, though they cannot speak. These gods need help. They are not sufficient in themselves. They are very needy gods. I think it's interesting. The god of Baal is the god who's almighty. The Babylonian people cry out, Baal, save us! But he cannot save them. Nebo is the god of wisdom. They say, Nebo, we need insight and counsel on the situation we're facing. But they get no answer. These gods need to be carried around. They need to be set up in the place where they're going to be worshipped. And then they're carried to the next place. They are utterly needy gods. But God is not needy like these gods who need all kinds of help. Rather, in verses 3 to 5, listen to what God says. After he sarcastically speaks about Bel and Nebo and how they, they weigh their, their burden, they weigh down those who carry them around and they need to be carried from place to place. Verse 3, God says this, Listen up, Israel. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. Listen to what it says in verse Halfway through verse 3. Who have been born by me from before your birth? Carried even from the womb? Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. God is so full and overflowing in himself that far be it from God to be, need to be carried around. He's the one who carries us around and all of creation around. He creates, he bears, he sustains out of his fullness. You might say this is the outflow of a God full and overflowing with life and joy and glory. He is the everlasting fountain. We are merely empty cups who need his fullness. We need his help. We need his life. We need breath even from him. In Paul's sermon in Athens in Acts chapter 17, this accents our point very clearly. It says this. Paul says, this is to a bunch of pagans who served all kinds of gods. He said, the God who made heaven, excuse me, made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This God is totally full. This God is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from Him. So this teaches us that there is a certain posture that honors God and brings forth His blessing. Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who work for Him. No, for those who wait for him. 
who acts for those who wait for him, who know that they are empty and they call upon him and just wait for him for his fullness. So the words of Jesus, the very first of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, all of a sudden this sounds like great news. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you see yourself as needy. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who are poor in spirit, they, they position themselves, you might say, to receive from an all-sufficient God from his fullness. So God is totally unique. He is totally in a category on his own because he is totally self-sufficient. Second, God is utterly unique in that he is sovereign. Now, Reed dealt with this last week, so I'm just going to take a portion this morning and talk about this some more. It's unmistakable in this passage. God is sovereign. In verses 8 to 11, we see that God declares, and he does. He gives counsel, his own counsel, and he accomplishes. He speaks, and he brings it to pass. He purposes, and he does what he purposes. So sovereignty defined, here's how I would define sovereignty. Try to do it simply is God has the right and the power to do whatever he chooses. And he actually does. God runs things. He has purpose in either causing or allowing in all of his creation. Our text is specifically talking about God's sovereign purpose in raising up Cyrus. You know, it's, it's absolutely amazing. This passage was probably written rough, over 100 years prior to Cyrus even being born. And it's calling him by name. And says, I'm going to raise up this man, this bird from the east, and he's going to do my will. He's going to do exactly what I intend for him to do. So it's certainly specifically talking about God raising up Cyrus, the king of Persia, to accomplish his will. And so it might lead us to come to the conclusion that God exercises this kind of power and authority sometimes, but certainly not all the time. I read verse 10 as a statement of absolute fact. Verse 10 says, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. And then I read verse 11 as an explanatory example of God doing just that. The reason I read it this way is that the Bible affirms from beginning to end that God is absolutely sovereign. John Murray, a um, theologian from the 19th century, excuse me, the 20th century, 1900s, he, he, he said the Bible presupposes so it doesn't labor in every passage to prove that God is sovereign. It has this underlying presupposition that God is sovereign over all of his creation. Even here in our text, in verses 8 and 9, before it declares God being sovereign, he says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things. Remember the former things. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I showed myself mighty again and again 
and again. God is sovereign. But verse, verse 10 sounds very familiar to other texts in the Bible as well. Job, at the very end of his whole ordeal with God, says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In Daniel chapter 4, after Nebuchadnezzar's ordeal, he said something very similar. says, for God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, he says, no one can stay God's hand or say to him, what have you done? In Ephesians 1, verse 11, Paul says the same thing. When he speaks of God, and he says he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So God is totally sovereign. Now, I understand that when we face this truth, when we come to the Bible and face this truth, it can feel a bit overwhelming. And I can say from my own personal experience that my journey to come to love and cherish the truth of God's sovereignty did not come overnight. In fact, it came with great anguish at times because I didn't like it at first. But I just want to go through some different aspects of God's sovereignty from the scriptures. I don't want you to take my word for it. From the scriptures and commend this truth to you today. Let's let God speak for himself as he asserts his sovereignty from the scriptures. God is sovereign over seemingly insignificant events. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I say, roll the dice, right? You cast the, the die on the table. Its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the smallest of living creatures. The smallest that we can see with our eyes anyways. Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God is sovereign over weather, over weather patterns. In Job chapter 37, it says this, From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the, th the thick cloud with moisture, and the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Last night, off to the east, I was putting a couple of my kids to bed, and they, a couple of them saw the clouds. They're really low-lying clouds. Actually, over our house is pretty clear, but off to the east is very low-lying clouds. It looked somewhat ominous, and my, a couple of my girls were kind of scared, and I, and I was like, oh, that's right, Job 37. So I was like, girls, those are God's clouds. Those are his clouds. He might be loading them up with moisture to rain and bless the earth out east over there. So when Jesus... And Mark chapter 4 speaks, peace be still to a storm. 
how could the wind and waves do anything other than obey his command? Right? What else are you going to do? He is sovereign. The Bible says that God is sovereign over disaster and even calamity. In Amos chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God is sovereign over foreign affairs. Psalm 33, 10 and 11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God is sovereign even over the evil work of Satan. The whole story of Job shows this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us this. When Paul says a thorn was given to him, and I can deal with what the thorn is. It's irrelevant for this morning. A thorn was given to him, a messenger from Satan that was given to him to keep him from exalting himself. Meaning that there was purpose in this thorn given to him, a messenger from Satan. There was purpose in it. And it was to keep him from exalting him. It was to keep him humble. It was to keep him from pride and exalting in himself. Whose purpose would that be? Not Satan's. God's. God is sovereign over your life and death, over my life and death. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. James says, it's arrogant for us to say, tomorrow I'm going to do this and that. I'm going to go to a certain town. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to bring home some bacon. That's just what I'm going to do. He says, it's arrogant to say that. Why? Because it doesn't take into account God, which is the point of the passage. He says, what you should rather say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that and the other thing. God is sovereign over your life and your death and mine too. And there's one more I want to bring out. And when I saw this, when I, when I saw this aspect of God, when I saw this truth, every argument in my mind against God's sovereignty fell to the ground. And I put my hand over my mouth and stopped all of my arguments and bowed before God as sovereign. In the same event I'm about to share, we see simultaneously the greatest evil in all the world ever, God crucified, and the most glorious thing that's ever happened on the face of the earth, the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world, the cross. At the cross, we see the most evil act ever as sinful man put Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to death. And yet we see the most glorious thing as Jesus himself is taking away the sin of the entire world. And we see in Acts 4 that God planned all of it and did it. In Acts 4, verse 27 and 28 This is part of the prayer of the disciples as they gather together and they lifted up their voices to God. This is part of their prayer. They said, Truly, in this city there were gathered against, excuse me, gathered gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Judas denied Jesus, betrayed him. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish people who were crying for him to be crucified, the Roman soldiers who scourged him and took him away and hung him on a tree. Gross, incredibly dark, horrific sin. And yet it was part of God's predestined plan. This all happened by God's hand and his plan that he predestined to take place. God is absolutely sovereign. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Think of this, your salvation, your salvation If God is not sovereign, your salvation hangs in the balance. Your very salvation, your very faith in Jesus Christ hangs in the balance if God is not sovereign. But I believe Isaiah 46 and a constant witness throughout the Bible show us that he is. God is utterly unique because he is sovereign. He has the right and the power to do whatever he chooses and he actually does. But God is also utterly unique in that he is a savior. God is a savior. God is a savior. If you think about every other religious system, God is not the unique savior in Islam or Mormonism or Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever variation of any of those religious systems at all. God saves partway, maybe, and people do the rest. But here we see that God is totally unique because he doesn't try to save, he saves. He doesn't attempt to do something. He doesn't attempt to save you. If you believe in Jesus, he actually does save you. And he saves you to the uttermost. Verse 12 says, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. He addresses them again. He says, Listen up, Israel. Listen up, my people. He talks to those who are stubborn to him. Who are far from righteousness. They're a long ways from righteousness. In fact, we might say what is written in Romans chapter 3 is true of them, where it says, none is righteous, no, not one. None understands, none seek God. All have turned aside, they they all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's talking to them. You who are far from righteousness. They were far from righteousness, and because they were far from righteousness, they were far from God. And what does God do? He says, listen up. You stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, does he write them off? Does he shun them forever? Does he say, I am sick and tired of your stubbornness? Why don't you come 
near me? Why don't you get over here close to where it's righteous? Does he wait for them to come to him on their own volition? No, he doesn't do it. You know why? They wouldn't ever come. And you and I wouldn't either. Here's what he does. Verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. You who are far from righteousness, you stubborn people, I'm going to come near you. I'm going to bring my righteousness to you. And not only that, I'm going to bring my salvation. And it's not going to delay for another moment. I'm going to put it right in your midst. I'm going to give it to you. Israel, out in the wasteland of their own sin and rebellion and stubbornness and unrighteousness. And God brings near the oasis of his righteousness, the paradise of his salvation. God is a savior. God is a savior. God saves. He doesn't attempt to save. He does save. What does he do to bring his righteousness near? Here's what he does. He himself comes near. It's not like he throws a righteousness bomb at them. He himself comes. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. Talking about becoming Messiah. The Lord is our righteousness. And not only that, not only will he come near us, not only will he in some strange way give us righteousness, but he will actually give us new garments. And one of the garments he will give us is called a robe of righteousness. He will clothe us with righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. These prophecies, for sure, Jeremiah 23.6, Isaiah 61.10, and I think Isaiah 46.13 speak of the coming Messiah or Jesus Christ. God saves. If you today believe in Jesus, not maybe, but you do, you believe in him, and you're, you're abiding in Christ, you are walking with him, do you know why? Because you were wandering one day in darkness, in the stubbornness of your own heart, <clears throat> and he came and he got you. He came near you. You were totally unrighteous. You couldn't commend anything about yourself to him to accept you, right? You were far from righteousness, just like Israel. And he brought near his righteousness, his gift of righteousness, through Jesus Christ. And he put a robe of righteousness upon you so that now he can accept you not because he sweeps sin under the rug, but because he's undertaken every measure to save you and make you righteous in his sight. God is a savior. It's not, he's not the God of the gaps. You know, he goes a certain way and then you need to fill in the rest of the gap. 
I've even heard, heard somebody put, put it this way. You know, God has his say over your life. Satan has his say over your life. The decisive factor is what say do you have? I don't believe it for a second. Because they were far from righteousness. They were stubborn in their heart. And here it says, God himself is bringing righteousness to them. God himself is giving them salvation. And it won't delay. And at the right time, when God saw fit to overcome your stubbornness, he saved you. He did it. And Philippians chapter 1 says, He who began a good work in you. He's the one that begun it. He's the one that began it. He, he started it. He who began a good work in you. He will bring it to completion. God saves brothers and sisters. He wants us to be utterly secure in his salvation. So God is absolutely unique in his self-sufficiency, in his sovereignty, and in his, and in his salvation. This morning, I just want to end briefly with six exhortations. I'm going to get through these quick. Six exhortations in light of God's absolute uniqueness and his self-sufficiency and his sovereignty and in his salvation. First, be careful how you serve God. Now, that, that might sound really strange, okay? But Acts 17 says God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. Okay? So make sure that in your serving of God, you are not serving in such a way where you think you're adding something to him or he needs your help, right? Peter puts it this way, let him who serves, serve with the strength that God supplies so that in all things God gets the glory, okay? So in our service of God, we are receiving from God his strength so that we can serve him, okay, and serve others. So be careful how you serve God. Receive from God. Be full of God. Receive of His fullness, of His sufficiency, and then let your service come. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, and He gets the glory forever. Number two, bow your knee in humble adoration, awestruck at the extent of God's sovereignty. And that's a humble exhortation because I understand the sovereignty of God, as I believe it's stated clearly in the Bible, comes at us and we don't naturally receive it. So humbly bow your knee in adoration, awestruck at the extent of God's absolute sovereignty over his creation. Number three, because God is sovereign, be comforted in suffering, whatever kind of suffering it is. If it's physical suffering, if it's relational suffering, whatever suffering it is, be comforted in it because God has purpose in it. If God were not sovereign, so much of our lives would seem to lack any kind of purpose whatsoever any kind of meaning. But the Bible does not present God that way and it doesn't present our lives that way at all. Be comforted in suffering. Number four, pray 
boldly. Now that may sound schizophrenic with what I just said, right? Be comforted in suffering. Okay, so God is sovereign over this. I'm going to be comforted in this because God has purpose. And then I'm saying pray boldly. Sounds schizophrenic. And it may not make sense. To be sure there's paradox here. There's paradox here in how God is absolutely sovereign over everything and yet our responsive yet our responsible decisions and choices matter and they matter in a huge way. But all the counsel of God's word teaches us these two things that God's sovereignty is absolute and our responsibility is real. But here's the other thing I would encourage you in this. God's sovereignty actually gives us warrant to pray for impossible things. Because if God were not sovereign, then so many of the things that we pray for, he may not be able to do. But the reality is, and I think you'll track with this, you ever ever prayed for a a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker who doesn't know the Lord? And maybe you prayed something like this, Oh Lord, overcome their hardness. Remove obstacles, God. Take away the blinders from their eyes so they see Jesus. Help them, God, to see. God, change their hearts so that they believe in Jesus Christ. What are we doing? We are praying to a God who is sovereign. We are praying to a God who actually can do those things. And so when we're praying for that, or we're praying for healing, we're praying for deliverance from a situation, we are praying to a God. Psalm 115 says, when the nations say, where's your God? We say, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. We pray to a God who can do whatever he pleases. Number five, I want to encourage you to be confident in life and in death. I heard some counsel. The, some, uh, I heard something the other day that has stuck with me um, since then. But this person was saying it doesn't really. I'm kind of going off my notes here a bit. He said it would it would be a good thing for Christians to contemplate death here and there. Actually, he said often. I don't know if I believe often, but here and there. Okay. And if God is sovereign over our lives and over our, over our living and over our dying, then we can have absolute confidence in living and we can have absolute confidence when we face death. Our desire here at Real Life Church is that we would prepare you for both. Both for living for Jesus, and when the time comes, Lord willing, at 85 or 90, nice ripe old age, but we know that doesn't always happen. But living for Jesus and dying for Jesus. Number six. I want to exhort you to boast exceedingly in the God of sovereign grace who saved you. I want, you to, I want to exhort you to boast exceedingly in a God of sovereign grace who saved you. Ephesians chapter 2 says that by grace we are saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves. 
It's a gift from God so that no one may boast, right? There's no boasting before God in salvation. No boasting of ourselves, right? Not even of faith, because faith itself is a gift. No boasting before God. But there is a good way to boast. I want to end with this. 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to this. This is about the Corinthians, but it's also about you if you trust in Christ. Listen to what it says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of God, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. He's the one that did it, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's something glorious about boasting when our boast is in the Lord. Something completing of our joy when we boast. Our joy is is almost completed when we boast, but only when our boasting is in the Lord. So boast in the Lord and in his salvation. He has brought righteousness near you. He has brought salvation to you through Jesus Christ. It is yours. If, you're, if, you belong, if, excuse me, if you believe in Jesus and you truly do, he has saved you. No trying whatsoever. He has done it.